Episode 62, The Shackleton Rower Expedition. In 1920, still in debt over the ITAE, and still smarting that he didn't have any polar successes under his belt, and once again floundering half-heartedly with a variety of half-assed projects that never made him the fortune he wanted, while his heart floundered half-heartedly with the task of pushing blood around his circulatory system. So Ernest Shackleton began organising another expedition. At first, Shackleton aimed north to map the Beaufort Sea. At the time, the area remained an unknown quantity, though tidal records from adjacent coasts suggested to some that a large landmass must exist somewhere in the blank space on the charts, and this piqued the interest of the Canadian government, concerned that other nations might explore and claim any land on the basis of discovery and knowledge ahead of Canadian proximity. Shackleton considered also making a shot at the North Pole to put a definitive stamp where to date only the questionable claims of Peary and Cook lay. Hugh Robert Mill recorded that Shackleton also had an eye on Antarctica again as early as 1920. Sir Frederick Becker helped out with initial funding to some extent, but it was the contributions of a fellow Dulwich College student, John Quiller Rowett, attracted to the project by Shackleton's publicity campaign in the Daily Mail, who agreed to fund the new proposal through the family coffers, full off the back of 19th century privateering, pirates by royal appointment, that actually got things moving. Rowett was what we would today call a science buff. He founded an agricultural research institute and supported research in chemistry and medicine without engaging in research himself. Impressed by his fellow Dulwich alumnus' achievements, he would eventually pay the bills for the expedition almost entirely. The £10,000 Rowett stumped up in the first instance saw Shackleton purchase a Norwegian whaler, the Fokker One, for £11,000 all up. Dr Alexander Macklin, on board for further adventure from early in the piece, headed to Canada to source a hundred huskies. The Admiralty provided scientific equipment and put Lieutenant Commander R.T. Gould at Shackleton's disposal to assist in collating hydrographic department books and reports on the least known areas listed in the expedition proposal. Post-war economies didn't have much fat available for speculative explorations. The Canadian government Shackleton had dealt with was voted out in the federal election and the resulting parliament didn't want to support an expensive initiative kicked off by their predecessors. In mid-1921, too late to make much of the northern summer, Shackleton's focus shifted to Antarctica. This shift, reinforcing in observers a sense of an overall unfocused nature in this new venture. The new expedition proposal, drawing loosely on earlier permutations of expedition goals that never got off the drawing board, featured a plan to map 2,000 nautical miles of unseen coast, attempts to relocate and better chart lost islands, to pioneer polar aviation, to collect geological and meteorological data, to seek pearls in the Pacific and Captain Kidd's treasure in Trinidad, using Cape Town as a base of operations. Flores ashore were slated in Enderby land, but dogs were no longer part of the overall picture, and Shackleton recalled Macklin from Canada without the huskies he was busy sourcing. A bit of a mixed and ambitious expedition, even by the high standards set by Carsten Borschgrevink and Dr John Lachlan Cope. While no clear record exists, the best estimates of people who know of such things 
Clock Rowett's eventual contribution topping £100,000, and he didn't ask for anything in return for his contributions other than that his name be incorporated into the expedition title. Hubert Wilkins was in the USA, recovering from the farcical aspects of the BIAE he'd associated himself with, and trying to negotiate the use of Junkers aircraft with the American company representative, Danish expat John Larson. Both men thought the Junkers F-13, an early all-metal airframe used widely in explorations in Australia, Africa, New Guinea and South America, could readily adapt to high latitudes work. A series of in-flight engine fires and resulting crashes, later traced to incompatibility between the German-made engine and US-grade fuels, nixed the collaboration before any Junkers headed to the Arctic for trials in preparation for a foray to the Antarctic with two airframes. It was at this juncture that Wilkins received an invitation to join Shackleton's new expedition. Wilkins already knew Shackleton by the reputation propagated from the Nimrod by Mackay and Murray to the Kaluk, and by Dr. Cope and Frank Hurley after their experiences in the ITAE. The prospect of using an Avro Baby biplane, mounted on floats for use in pathfinding and survey around the entire Antarctic continent, sold the Australian and he headed to London on the promise of a £600 fee for a two-year commitment. In London, three months ahead of the nominal departure, Wilkins set himself to increasing his experience in aviation, learning navigation through Air Commodore William Maitland aboard airships, which the war veteran was helping achieve popularity and utility through his crossing the Atlantic in the R-34 in 1919, and various other achievements. Wilkins sat the British Air Ministry's air navigation exam and was slated to join the R-38, a larger airship built for the US Navy during its delivery flight across the Atlantic, but a telegram advising him to make his way to the departure airfield never arrived. The airship broke up over the Humber River, 44 of the 49 people aboard dying in the resulting fiery crash. Wilkins flew on airships after this tragedy, but he didn't have the confidence in them he did prior to it, and he kept his eye firmly focused on fixed-wing aviation for exploratory purposes. I think I've spotted a pertinent pattern in that explorers who'd served under incompetent leadership and then went on to lead their own expeditions often led well. It seems that the problems Roald Amundsen witnessed under Adrian de Gerlache informed the approach he took on subsequent voyages entirely under his direction. Similarly, Shackleton learnt from the missteps he witnessed while aboard the Discovery, going on to lead effectively during his subsequent voyages aboard the Nimrod and Endurance. Wilkins, having served under the borderline insane egomaniac in Wilhelm Stephenson, and then a grandiose fantasist in John Lachlan Cope, looked to Sir Ernest as a potential mentor as well as providing gainful employment and exploratory opportunities. He made no bones about the matter, stating to Shackleton, I want you to teach me, as a master wooden apprentice, how to lead a polar expedition. And if I measure up, you will tell the people who count that I am worthy of their financial backing. Franks Worsley and Wilde also signed on. Invitations to endurance veterans Tom Crean, Thomas McLeod, Leonard Hussey, James Wordy, Joseph Stenhouse, James McElroy, Charles Green, Alexander Kerr and Reginald James went out, 
Shackleton already having included them in a proposal submitted to the Admiralty in a request for support. James Wordy, less than impressed by Shackleton's treatment of science and scientists during the ITAE, felt unenthusiastic about the proposed circumnavigation. Another two years away from his career at Cambridge would require significantly better outcomes in terms of discoveries and publications than the ITAE yielded. So he wrote to Hugh Robert Mill requesting he use his influence over Shackleton to prompt a greater commitment to oceanographic sampling. With further work in the Arctic and the offing, and promising better defined outcomes for briefer commitments, Wordy's initial interest in Shackleton's project ebbed, and he declined his invitation, as did Reginald James. Canadian George Douglas came aboard as expedition geologist. Joseph Stenhouse declined and Tom Crean, recently married, was also absent from the ITAE reunion. Merchant Service Lieutenant Commander and Royal Navy Reservist Douglas Jeffrey signed on as Navigation Officer. Royal Air Force Officer Major C. R. Carr signed on in charge of aviation operations. Bean Mason became the official photographer. Royal Mail Steam Packet Company officer C. Smith became second engineer under Kerr. Post Office telegraphist Watts signed on as wireless operator and a Norwegian whaler called Ericsson came aboard as harpoon expert. Meanwhile, the expedition generated a great deal of public interest and associated funds when the Daily Mail made a call for applications from among the Boy Scouts. 1,700 applications to join the expedition were whittled down by founder of the Scout Association and veteran of the Siege of Mafeking, Lord Baden-Powell, to 10 final candidates. Shackleton further whittled but couldn't choose between the two best applications and opted to take them both, James W. S. Ma and Norman Mooney. While this publicity-garnering gambit generated a lot of goodwill and a fresh Union Jack from King George, the economy, still reeling in the wake of the First World War, didn't stump up the desired funds and, yet again, an inadequate ship was pushed into Antarctic service with inappropriate fit-out. The Quest, a name suggested by Lady Emily Shackleton, was a relatively young sealer with a clapped-out engine and a buckled keel. Hubert Wilkins expressed an idea that the purchasing agent must have been drunk when funds changed hands, and his low opinion of the vessel was borne out by the engine giving out three times just in clearing the mouth of the Thames on the 17th of September. Sailing under the white ensign permitted to the members of the Royal Yacht Squadron, noted as perhaps the ugliest yacht ever to sail under that burgee. Only on reaching Gritviken, where Frank Wilde consulted with Norwegian engineers, privy to a comprehensive almanac of Norwegian ships, did it come to light that the boiler was already three decades old when fitted to the quest. Expedition modifications included extending the wheelhouse the full breadth of the vessel, an accommodation deckhouse, and new running gear and spars for carrying more sail than the boat was ever built for. Two radios and the accompanying steam-powered genset to run them also went aboard. While radio sets to that date proved largely useless at high latitudes, it was thought they might at least pick up the radio time signals sent out by all major ports at the time, allowing an accurate tracking of Greenwich Mean Time, independent of onboard chronometers. 
The Air Ministry provided Hussey with meteorological balloons and cylinders of hydrogen with which to fill them, along with the array of barometers, thermometers, hydrometers and screens necessary for a thorough meteorological record. Navigation instruments included sextants, theodolites, dip circles and chronometers, and a gyroscopic compass and its repeaters. A gyro compass is a mechanism by which known true bearings could be held relative to a vessel's movements and heading by the precession of a continually spinning gyroscope for use when the magnetic compasses became useless by the influence of overwhelming local magnetic variation. The gyro compasses are still poked at much beyond 69 degrees of latitude because of the interference caused by the effects of the Coriolis deflection as a vessel approaches the regions in which it holds the greatest influence. A plan to remove the steam engine and replace it with a diesel unit had to be abandoned due to costs, and given what you'll later learn about the steam unit, this makes this, in my eyes, the most problematic aspect of the expedition preparations. The hull of the quest wasn't especially well suited to icework, its stem standing vertically where a ship expected to get into argy-bargy with ice flows required a raked bow that would let the weight of the forecastle rise over the ice, allowing gravity to play a part in parting the obstruction. The Avro Baby, with its wings and floats dismantled and stowed alongside its fuselage, filled the port side alleyway. The sledges and cold weather gear were sent on to Cape Town to await collection when the quest offered a little more freeboard, having burnt through some of its coal stocks on the transit south. The warped keel, the expedition modifications, the stores and the expanded bunkering for 120 tonnes of coal gave the quest a high centre of gravity, helped keep progress down to around five and a half knots at best, with four knots more often the reality, where the vendor who sold them the catch claimed a sustainable seven knots under steam. The keel and the slow pace gave the ship an unpleasant motion in any kind of waves. As the quest left London, it carried three pets, a dog called Query and two kittens. All this preparation took place in the three months available to Sir Ernest, eager to get away and make the most of the southern exploration season, and in spite of my reservations about the merit of the expedition plan, I recognised this as a feat of organisation few other people could pull off on a civilian footing. A gale hit the quest as they plotted south, and the motion of the sealer on large seas got even veteran mariners such as Frank Worsley vomiting. Alexander Macklin wrote that the quest has many uncomplimentary things said of her and deserves them all. A knock in the engine forced the quest to approach the Azores under sail and further engine troubles forced an unscheduled stop in Lisbon for repairs. The Avro Baby was put ashore for transport to Cape Town by mail steamer, making more deck space available in the extremely cramped quest, and helping lower the centre of gravity, marginally improving comfort levels and overall safety. At Madeira, Shackleton put ashore one of the scouts, Norman Mooney, and the official photographer, B. Mason, because their sustained seasickness was making their lives a misery and putting their health at risk. Wilkins added photographic duties to his already full dance card as expedition cinematographer and naturalist. A hundred tons of coal came aboard courtesy of Mrs. Wilson Sons and Company, who also acted as the expedition agents in effecting repairs to the engine and a refit of the rigging. 
After departing Madeira, the Norwegian, Ericsson, harpooned a porpoise which Wilkins dissected and Green cooked up. A casual footnote to Wild, which reads as environmental heresy to present-day Western sensibilities. The slow pace at sea and the engineering port calls forced Shackleton to abandon plans to collect cargo at Cape Town, including most of the winter kit and the Avro Baby aircraft. Previously, the crew of the Endurance found Filchner's abandoned winter equipment intact and stored safely by the residents of Gritviken when on their way south in 1914, and Shackleton hoped the missing gear could be replaced from the German cache, but Wilkins experienced a second false start in his ambition to see aviation used as a high-latitudes exploratory tool that a whaling station likely couldn't remedy. The expedition arrived under sail in Rio de Janeiro, where the ship's engine, given out once again and its prop shaft badly out of true, underwent a complete overhaul, while Shackleton underwent a heart attack at age 47. He prescribed himself champagne to help deal with the pain in his chest, which was ganging up on him as his neuralgia flared once more. Macklin, unable to examine his truculent patient, recorded that Shackleton confided to him that he didn't know what the expedition would do after reaching South Georgia, giving an impression that the expedition was more of a boondoggle than a mission. That's certainly how it looks in hindsight, but that seems to have been missed by those Shackleton involved in the project, particularly Wilkins, who saw the quest voyage as his opportunity to see how a polar expedition should be run. The overhaul required five weeks, after which the quest would sail south from Rio to make as much use of the southern summer as still remained. Expat Britons billeted members of the expedition in their homes during the layover. Harold Argles, a Canadian pilot who demonstrated aircraft for Wilkins in New York when the Australian was still considering heading north on his own expedition, came south to Rio and joined the ship as a stoker, replacing a stoker whose name eludes me on Wilkins' recommendation. Argles brought to the team both a strong back and a willingness to trim coal, in addition to aviation engineering and piloting skills to support Major Carr. Wilkins and geologist George Douglas went ahead to South Georgia by whaling steamship to make scientific collections while the quest plodded through the South Atlantic. Norwegian harpoon expert Ericsson headed home to Norway and the quest took on Young as an additional stoker and Naisbit as Cook's mate. The quest departed Rio on the 18th of December, a two-bladed prop replacing the four-bladed unit that wasn't making good use of what horsepower the engine put out. The overhaul carried out in Rio meant Kerr didn't have any further trouble with the engine. Note the careful use of the word engine there, as the boiler was another matter. Storms and sustained steam-powered crappiness kept the overhauled ship from making anything approaching good speed. Shackleton declared that in his 30 years at sea, he never previously encountered a gale so long sustained at such a high intensity as that which the quest endured on its way south. Worsley put six gallons of oil over the bow to prevent the waves, lashed by winds sometimes reaching hurricane strength, from turning the top-heavy vessel turtle. James Marr recorded, Bags of oil were put down in front of the bows to keep down the sea, where the weight of the storm hit us. The effect was really remarkable. 
a large sea, which was likely to hit us, would fall flat about 15 yards off and slide away under the bows. As the effects of the storm ebbed, Kerr gave further bad news. In cleaning out the fires, he found a trickle of water coming from the boiler plumbing. Unable to trace it to its source, Kerr couldn't state whether it was a minor defect or an indication of a looming catastrophic rupture. The quest continued south under reduced boiler pressure. Late, sick and faffing about on a crap ship with no clear mission, Shackleton got shirty, finding fault in everything and everyone, expressing mastery over the minutiae still within his control, but getting everyone's backup in doing so. He stood his watch on the bridge in spite of his discomfort and in spite of advice to rest from Macklin and McElroy. The first iceberg appeared on the 2nd of January. Shackleton wrote of the stirring sighting, At 1pm we passed our first berg. The old familiar sight aroused in me memories that the strenuous years had deadened. Blue cabins shone with sky glow, snatched from heaven itself. Green spurs showed beneath the water. And berg's mast high came sailing by, as green as emerald. Ah me! The years that have gone since in the pride of young manhood I first went forth to the fight. I grow old and tired, but always must lead on. South Georgia came in sight on the 4th, and Shackleton spent hours on the bridge, watching familiar landmarks appear in his binoculars, and recounting his experiences on the island during the ITAE, reminiscing with those who shared them. Ingrid Viking, after an arrival dinner with the local notables, and looking forward to celebrating a late Christmas the following day after Wilkins and Douglas rejoined the ship, Shackleton returned to the quest and got his head down. Unable to sleep, he called on Hussey to bring his banjo to his cabin, and the boss drifted off to the five-string strains of Brahms' lullaby. He called Dr. Macklin, up on anchor watch, to his cabin at 2am to request a sleeping draught as his chest pain was keeping him awake. Macklin, after fetching some warmer bedclothes than the boss was using in his frigid cabin, advised his friend to rest more and drink less. You shouldn't be taking sleeping potions, Give up the good life and you'll sleep. Shackleton responded, You are always wanting me to give up something. First it was drink, then it was cigarettes. What will be the next thing I have to give up? Macklin prepared the draft. Shackleton swilled it in a single gulp, fell backwards into the bedclothes and dropped the glass, which shattered on the deck. With Macklin looking on, freaked out, thinking perhaps he'd made a mistake in preparing the sleeping draft, Shackleton suffered a second, more damaging heart attack, and it killed him. Macklin fetched McElroy for a confirmation of the diagnosis, and for moral support, because in the small hours of the 5th of January, the unfortunate doctors had to wake Frank Wilde and tell him the bad news. Sleep bleared. The Yorkshireman couldn't process it at first, bluntly refusing to accept that such a vibrant personality as Shackleton might demure to anyone, let alone a heart condition. Distraught at the death of his friend and colleague, Wilde took charge of the expedition, determined to honour Shackleton by carrying on. The first order of business was getting the corpse ashore for an independent autopsy, which confirmed the cause of death as heart attack. 
Shackleton's body then lay in state in the Whalers' Chapel. Wilkins and Douglas, meanwhile, made good use of their time at South Georgia, collecting large volumes of natural history and geological material, respectively. I'm looking forward to interviewing some South Georgia residents to give listeners the best possible idea of the geography, climate and wildlife of that island, so I'll just mention here that Wilkins came close to accidentally killing himself while cooking a duck for his Christmas dinner. Wild weather forced him to set up his galley inside his tent, and in the cramped darkness, he knocked some of the arsenic powder that he used to preserve study skins of the birds he collected into the food. The resulting painful stomach cramps laid him up for two days. On returning to Gritviken, Wilkins and Douglas sighted the quest with its flag at half-mast and imagined this a mark of respect for a life lost in the dangerous work of the whaling station or aboard the associated vessels. When Douglas Jeffrey shouted down about the boss's death, Wilkins realised his third polar expedition was also something of a bust, and that he wouldn't be apprenticed to his master beyond Grit Viking. Wilkins wrote of the boss, No leader could have been more helpful, no man more generous than Shackleton had been. Without him, we were as flint without steel. Dull, hard things without the fire. With the summer exploring season passing them by, Wilde ordered the quest south without waiting for confirmation from John Rowett. Given the dodginess of the ship's boiler, Wilkins figured Shackleton would have given the voyage further south second thoughts, but Wilde felt compelled to carry forward. In his own words, Having put my hand to the plough, there was to be no turning back. Wilde learnt from station manager Jacobson that Filchner's equipment case had been dissipated throughout the station in the years since his last visit, and while food and some clothing could be obtained from the various whaling stations operating on the island, the dearth of sledges and associated trappings precluded a possible overland foray in Graham Land. The quest bunkered another hundred tonnes of coal from the oil carrier ship moored up at Husvik. Mr Hansen, station manager at Leith Harbour, arranged hand harpoons, ice axes and ice picks from the smithy, and a Shetland's Flenser, called Ross, joined Kerr and Smith in the quest's engine room. Wilde recorded his feelings on departing South Georgia in his diary, and the version copied into his account of the expedition, Shackleton's Last Voyage, reads, I had served with him in all his expeditions, twice as his second in command. I accompanied him on his great journey, which so nearly attained the pole, shared with him in every one of his trials and vicissitudes in the South, and rejoiced with him in his triumphs. No one knew the explorer side of his nature better than I, and many other tales I could tell of his thoughtfulness and his sacrifices on behalf of others, of which he himself never spoke. Of his hardihood and extraordinary powers of endurance, his buoyant optimism when things seemed hopeless, and his unflinching courage in the face of danger, I have no need to speak. He always did more than his share of work. Medical evidence shows that the condition which caused his death was an old standing one and was due to throwing too great a strain upon a system weakened by shortage of food. I have known personally and served with all the British leaders of exploration in the Antarctic since my first voyage in the Discovery. For qualities of leadership and ability to organise, Shackleton stands foremost and must be ranked as the first explorer of his day.
The Quest visited Zavadovsky Island and made a running survey, where previously few landings and no systematic soundings took place. Trying to make better use of space on deck, Wilde ordered one of the boats put outboard on its davits during a spell of calm weather. At a critical moment, the long, lazy swell took charge, and the heavily laden boat swung back inboard, catching Worsley between it and the wheelhouse. The wall behind Worsley caved in, dodgy workmanship saving the captain's life as the broken ribs, bruising and shock put him out of action for several weeks. A fraction more crushing would have left him dead. Cook's mate Naysbit published a single copy of Expedition Topics, featuring contributions from many of the crew. Comprising a sheaf of typewritten pages and some hand-drawn illustrations, this was a far cry from the near-professionally-turned-out Aurora Australis of Shackleton's 1907 expedition, but it helped ease a monotonous patch in an expedition sailing under a cloud. Reaching the sea ice gave old and new hands alike a buzz. McLeod commenting to McIlroy, Here we are, home again. Doesn't it do you good to get back? Wilde found the quest quite handy for manoeuvring around ice flows, but almost useless for working into narrow leads. Where other ships of his experience could nose into a gap and gently prise them open by an application of thrust, the quest simply lacked the oomph to do the job. Worsley, recovering from his injuries quickly and chafing at Macklin and McIlroy's hospitalisation, began taking his watch once more, easing the strain placed on Wilde and Geoffrey and easing the frustration on an ice pilot confined to bed as the sounds of his ship working through the ice pervaded his hospital. In his account of the struggle to make progress into the pack, Frank Wilde made regular mention of a phenomenon that now resonates more strongly with me than previously. He mentioned looking for water sky as an indication of open water. I'd read about water sky in any number of polar expedition documents, but it was an encounter with a large iceberg while sailing south from South Georgia that helped me understand how potent a navigational aid water sky must have been in the time before radar units and satellite imagery. First, I need to describe ice blink, because without that, water sky won't make any sense. Ice blink is an indication of ice lying over the horizon and shows as a brightening of the clouds in an area due to the light reflected off the ice onto the cloud base. Water sky describes the opposite, a patch of dark clouds where no ice lies below to reflect light. Mariners used ice blink and water sky to help them find or navigate among, or more importantly, to map a path out of the pack. Both phenomena are far more starkly delineating than I ever expected. I thought they were something you'd need to get your eye in for, but it's obvious even to a colour vision deficient observer such as myself. This was brought home to me on seeing the biggest iceberg of my experience, presently a 23 mile long chunk of B-17, the 17th berg of sufficient size to warrant tracking that broke away from the B, or Ross Quadrant, sector since iceberg tracking kicked off. I saw the 20th fragment tracked since B-17 started breaking up. I watched as my ship approached the berg, amazed at how the berg's albedo lit up the sky above. 
the contrast line in the clouds appearing almost as stark as that between the white of the ice and the dark grey of the ocean. As we drew nearer, I could see the far edge of the berg out of my line of direct sight due to the relative heights involved, delineated as water sky beyond the ice blink. Tufa. It's always hard to put such staggering quantities of anything into perspective, the numbers required lying so far out of our everyday experience. But I got a thrilling sense of the iceberg's scale when I tried to find it on the radar. I couldn't make sense of the return on the radar screen. There was a landmass showing, but no land in sight from the bridge. What's the scale? Range set at 5 nautical miles. That can't be correct or I'd see that land. And even then, where's the berg between the land and us? This is... Oh... That's no moon. Big berg is big. Personal anecdotal digression over. The quest nosed its way among the ice, regular culls de sac frustrating their efforts, but the local wildlife providing food in the form of crab-eater seals and diversion in the form of the first emperor penguin sighting. Wild and Harrison witnessed an orca attack on a crab-eater seal, the victim surviving though carrying six deep gouges in its hide. Wild wanted to euthanise the seal, but Harrison asked that they observe it to see if it could survive the damage. The bleeding eased over time, and the seal went back to doing the lazy lolling that the species so excels at, though in this case it did so in a large puddle of its own precious bodily fluids. After four days, the seal's wounds healed enough that the animal returned to the water. The quest, pushing its way into the ice, received enough jarring and pressure that the hull seams began letting in water requiring four hours pumping a day to keep the hull in buoyancy equilibrium. After a month making observations and soundings in the sea ice at ever higher latitudes, the density of the pack blocked their path to anywhere exploration might prove novel and interesting. Concerned that the quest would fare even worse than the Endurance should the expedition be iced in for the winter, and the crew to fare far worse than that of the Endurance if marooned in their present locale, Wild and Worsley kept an eye on the calendar and the weather. On the 12th of February, at 69 degrees, 17 minutes south, Worsley, Dell and Adams took a sounding, finding 1,086 fathoms, a third less deep than the previous measurement, 29 miles further south. They'd likely found the continental shelf, but with time against them, Wild ordered the expedition head north. He intended to refit in Cape Town, and his account mentions a desire to adjust the crew to remove some sources of friction, though he never mentions who was getting on whose nerves. Cape Town also held the prospect of properly equipping the Quest with the cold weather gear and the Avro Baby sent there during the expedition preparations. With full kit, fewer sources of discontent, and a full southern summer, Wilde felt he could really serve Rowett, Science, and Shackleton's memory well. In the small hours of the morning, some tarred rope laid against the quest's funnel caught fire. The watch applied pyrene extinguishers to full effect, but the incident put the wind up all on board, and sharpened everyone's mode, as it would be something of a ball terror to survive months in the pack ice, only to be undone by someone leaving the cap off the toothpaste, so to speak. 
a final desultory attempt to reach the continent took advantage of loose pack on the 18th of February, but resulted in yet another dead end. Given the lateness of the season, Wilde determined this the last gasp for that summer. The set of the sails, an ungainly rig if the pictures are anything to go by, generated downdrafts in the forecastle and around the galley, preventing effective burning of coal in the stoves. Everyone experienced the Antarctic cold to an extent previously only the domain of those ashore or marooned on the sea ice. Green managed to produce baked potatoes, and Macklin recorded using his to warm his extremities and under his jersey before ingesting it and allowing the last of its heat to permeate his insides. With discontent aboard the quest, reaching a point that the officers were sharing their gripes with the wardroom, Wilde held court in the forward and aft messes, stating that sustained griping would be met with drastic countermeasures. I don't know if this ran to the I've got a gun and I'm willing to use it rhetoric Wilde needed to apply on Elephant Island when someone started stealing from the supplies. Wilde's account doesn't mention what the countermeasure comprised, but clearly his leadership mode and the mood of the ship lay at odds, and I don't envy anyone experiencing a situation where such a disjunct exists. Once a trip turns sour, it's really hard to bring it back to productive bonhomie, and while I don't think I'd like to serve under Wilde with his, and that's the end of the discussion, leadership that he applied to the situation, I also don't envy his having to fill Shackleton's boots on a poorly defined mission on a shitty ship. I've tried to think of how you would set things up more perfectly for failure, and the only thing I can come to is including a sociopath in a role of responsibility on a poorly defined mission on a shitty ship after the popular leader died unexpectedly. At least Wilde had a head for risk management that went beyond looking out exclusively for himself and wasn't suffering late-stage syphilitic dementia. During the ship's transit out of the ice, the expedition crossed an area James Clark Ross noted as holding the appearance of land the previous century, but uninterrupted ocean demonstrated Ross as capable of mistaking icebergs for mountains too. Wilkes may have done it more often, but it wasn't his party trick exclusively. Watts managed to pick up a time signal from Rio, which stands as the first useful information received in Antarctic waters by radio, to my knowledge. In a worrying repetition of the endurance experience, the quest did become caught in the sea ice on its way north, and while the ship was immobilised in this way, an iceberg made life more interesting than anyone needed. Pushed by deep currents not registering in the sea ice, the four-mile-long berg, sitting proud of the sea ice by 65 metres, ploughed toward the ship. It pushed up pressure ridges and made the wood of the hull sing in a manner unpleasantly familiar to the ITAE veterans as it bore down on the quest. Preparations to abandon ship began, but the ever-increasing rafters of sea ice prevented the crew lowering the boats. The ship heeled over to an alarming degree. With 60 metres remaining between it and the ship, and with the crew of the quest preparing for impact, the iceberg's direction of travel changed. It carried away at right angles to its previous track, leaving a lead of open water that reached almost to the ship. Worsley ordered steam gotten up, and men went onto the ice to help warp their way forward to freedom. Having burnt most of the coal, the quest rode very top-heavy, and Wilde steered for Elephant Island, intending taking on board Shingle as ballast. 
the quest's writing moment, the capacity for the weight distribution of the vessel to keep it upright after rolling on the swell, decreased further as the sea spray froze onto the rigging, rails and deck fittings as they beat toward Elephant Island, adding weight where it was least needed. The ice made working above decks dangerous, and the rising sea forced Wild to lay to at night, when white horses became indistinguishable from growlers. The ship's motion reached a zenith of discomfort as the increasingly top-heavy vessel worked increasingly hairy seas. Macklin recorded Wild commenting, The man who comes down here for the sake of experience is mad. The man who comes twice is beyond all hope. While as for the man who comes five times... Words failed him. For his own part, Macklin recorded, We are getting near to Elephant Island, the home of all foul winds that blow. What crazy impulse sent me again to these abandoned regions? Spirits reached a low ebb, but on March the 24th they were at least able to raise the foretopsail and make some headway toward their goal. Clarence Island showed on the morning of the 25th, and Elephant Island in the afternoon, and those who spent time there in 1916 experienced a mixed emotional medley of reminiscences at the sight of their former salvation from the travails of the open boat escape from the pack, and the former prison for those left behind to await the outcome of the voyage of the James Caird. Anyone among the newcomers who ever thought the old guard was shooting a line about their experiences at Elephant Island found the stories validated by the geography confronting them. It really is, to quote Tom from Citation Needed, a hopelessly shitty spit of land. The quest anchored at Cape Lookout and the boat put ashore Wilkins and Douglas for their science and Carr, Macklin, McElroy and Kerr to hunt up some fresh seals and penguins. I like Wilde's description of the Gentoo penguin as possessing a particularly inane expression. A second boatload went ashore and traversed the beach under the suspended tongue of a glacier, everyone nervous at walking beneath such a vast mass of frozen, brittle water. Wilde kept the weather eye, knowing to never trust Elephant Island, and at the first sign of a rising sea, put the shore party back aboard the quest. As the anchor came up, the glacier let loose the ice tongue, and even with no one directly under it at the time, the large wave it sent out rocked the quest violently, demonstrating how few fucks high latitudes nature gives about the well-being of humans. On the 26th of March, the quest visited Table Bay. The bay was tantalisingly visible from Cape Wild, and the imaginations of those unable to reach it populated it with multitudes of penguins and seals. On visiting the bay aboard the quest, they found it a series of rocky bluffs, and while a landing might be effected at one end of the beach, they didn't feature anything much edible, let alone the surfeit of wildlife that fueled imaginings as wild as Green Street's proposed to Duckin precursor, penguins baked in a seal in a hungy. A storm came through while the quest was anchored near Seal Rocks, awaiting an opportunity to go ashore at Cape Wild to reminisce, and collect McIlroy's diary, left behind in the rush to get aboard the Yelcho, and to collect shingle to ballast the ship to counter the increasing absence of coal. The storm put the quest about, and the anchor began to drag in the small hours. Macklin, up on anchor watch, alerted Wild 
who called up all hands and sent for full steam on the engine room telegraph. In laying an anchor, it's actually the chain you want the boat to ride from, the anchor itself being an intended last resort to keep the whole assembly from moving. As you bring in the warp and the chain starts to lift from the seafloor, there's less and less weight holding you in place and any dragging you already experience will get worse as you get closer to lifting the anchor and with the quest already backing into a dangerously jagged lee shore in the situation, this quickening dragging caused considerable consternation. Then the anchor chain fouled in the spurling pipes, piled up on the deck and jammed the capstan winch. With the engine slow ahead, Carr and Macklin went below with the chain hook to clear the blockage in the chain locker and get the whole process moving again before any additional Rube Goldbergage put them further afoul. Once clear of seal rocks and with the anchor properly stowed, the quest ran on before the storm. Unable to turn back to Elephant Island without risking turning turtle while broadside to the growing swell in its unballasted state. The storm blew out after three days and Wild figured they couldn't afford to blow the last of their coal getting back to Elephant Island and so kept on for South Georgia when the engine stopped. The engine stopped, the fires banked and still making better speed than at any other point in the voyage while using only the foretop mast topsail. Wilde called for all hands to help set the square sail. This lay furled on the deckhouse roof. In handling the frozen bundle from the frozen roof, Wilkins lost his grip and shot off the roof, disappearing to leeward. The cry, Wilkie's gone, went up, and with the vessel and the sea in the state they were in, there could be no turning back to collect anyone from overboard without losing the lot. Fortunately, Wilkins caught the backstay as he flew towards his southern ocean doom. His grip exceeded his momentum and he dropped to the deck, surprised and sore, but alive. South Georgia appeared on the horizon on the 4th of April, and on the 6th, the quest steamed into Leith Harbour using the last of the coal and moored up to a buoy. A motor launch came out bearing station manager Hansen. A motor launch came out bearing station manager Mr. Hansen and Leonard Hussey, bringing with him the Ballad of Shackleton's Bones. Shackleton's remains, in Hussey's care, headed home, making first for Uruguay aboard the Professor Gruvel. On approaching Montevideo, a naval launch met the ship and transferred Shackleton's coffin for dispatch to the military hospital. An honour guard of a hundred marines lined the quay for the arrival of this respected corpse. On receiving a telegram with news of her husband's death from Hussey, Lady Emily Shackleton sent a reply via Mr Rowett that her husband should be buried on South Georgia. She called it the gateway to Antarctica, a place he loved dearly, and the site of his finest hour. The Uruguayan Navy requested the opportunity to carry the boss back to South Georgia, but Hussey demurred on the basis that their steel-hulled ships would, if met with pack ice, unnecessarily put the lives of all on board at risk. While almost every ship operating in Antarctica today is steel-hulled, both hull design and the processes for refining steel have improved well beyond what was available at the time, when mariners thought only resilient, flexible wooden hulls were suited to the rigours of icework. Instead, the boss, again under Hussey's care, arrived back at Gritviken aboard the Woodville 
and the Norwegians buried him at the small graveyard to the north of the whaling station on the 5th of March. The other graves there lie east to west to face home and the rising sun. But Shackleton's lies north-south, facing the Antarctic. Bronze wreaths from Uruguay and Britain were placed in the grave, but they aren't holding up very well after a century's worth of South Georgia winters. Hussey returned to Montevideo aboard the factory whaleship Nico, and from there sailed on to Britain to report to Mr Rowett on all that occurred since departing in the previous September. He then returned to South Georgia to await the return of the quest. The expedition bunkered coal, a task made difficult by the stowage of deck gear in the bunkers on leaving the pack ice in an attempt to keep the vessel's centre of gravity as low as possible. This gear required extensive cleaning on removal from the bunkers as the mix of coal and seal blubber, used to help economise on coal use, fouled everything and proved something of a mongrel to remove. Potatoes, pigs, goats, whale meat, the quest took whatever the whaling stations were willing to give them, while the boats kept busy with fishing parties, bringing in a large haul of the local seafood. The quest took on mail bound from the remote islands of Tristan de Cuna, before departing Leith Harbour for Grytviken. There, Wilde and his crew erected a cairn commemorating Sir Ernest at Point Edwards, before departing South Georgia for what would turn out to be the last time. This pile of rocks is the most significant marker to British dominion over Antarctic resources anyone made in the immediate post-war era, though given the vagueness of the plan Shackleton made for the quest expedition, it's more than Leo Amory might have hoped for. Frank Wilde drank heavily throughout the rest of the quest expedition, a marker to the mean of his later years and eventual death in South Africa. The quest's visits to Tristan de Cuna, Gough Island and Inaccessible Island received their due attention in Wilde's book, Shackleton's Last Voyage, but lie beyond the remit of iced coffee to discuss. The expedition reached Cape Town on the 18th of June. Frank Wilde had in mind a refit and a second Austral summer in the south, but a telegram from John Rowett ordered that the expedition return to Britain. With the unifying presence of the boss gone, Frank Wilde drinking to assuage his distress over the death of his friend and leader, and the expedition heading home with little to show for their efforts. The discomforts of the quest drew the patience of the crew thin, and harsh words marked a deep division between the mariners and the scientists. Wilde did what he could to quell the trouble, but it was Wilkins who seems to have best bridged the gap. His affability, stoicism and oddness generated a mixture of curiosity and camaraderie that broke the circuit of the worst of the antipathy. During the transit back to Britain, Wilkins conducted experiments into a claimed ability to receive radio messages with his brain. While the navigation officer, Douglas Jeffrey, received messages on the ship's radio, Wilkins would remain in his berth in the forecastle. He would then repeat the received message as near to word for word as makes no difference. I smell Popov, but I'll delve further into Wilkins' regularly cited supernatural abilities in further episodes dedicated to his exploits. Rowett was the first aboard to greet the returning Antarcticans in Plymouth on the 16th of September, congratulating Wilde on a job well done under trying circumstances. Wilde, normally laconic by my measure, 
came out with some substantial poetic phrasings when describing Antarctica and its influence over him in his diary. He felt satisfied to dedicate so much of his life, in his words, to pioneer and guide the groping fingers of knowledge on the white edges of the world. When asked why he'd spent almost half his life in Antarctica, he responded, Once you have been in the white unknown, you could never escape the call of the little voices. Shackleton's last voyage, considered the end of the heroic era of Antarctic exploration, achieved more than it might have done, but much of that occurred in temperate and tropical seas. Little science came of the expedition directly, but James Ma, aboard by the vagaries of competition against 1,700 other scouts, went on to become one of Britain's foremost polar researchers. Ma's journals of the voyage, intended from the start to form part of Shackleton's publicity arising from the expedition, was published as Into the Frozen South in 1923. Frank Wilde's account, drawing on the official expedition journal and Alexander Macklin's diary, came out the same year. Given the dearth of scientific publications that followed the quest's return to Britain, it would seem James Wordy was wise to give his birth a swerve. But perhaps those who sailed with the boss one final time reaped their own reward. Frank Wilde wrote of Shackleton, I knew that I should never look upon his like again. He was not only a great explorer, he was a great man. By his genius for leadership he had kept us all in good health. By sheer force of his personality he had kept our spirits up. By his magnificent example he had enabled us to win through. His was a proud and dauntless spirit. We would have gone anywhere without question, just on his order. What more glowing tribute could any man wish for? Having sailed with, sledged alongside and eaten penguins with pretty much every notable character the Commonwealth nation sent to the Antarctic during the heroic era, Frank Wilde was the man to make such praise as close to truth as anyone ever really gets. While he never travelled in company with Sir Ernest, Apsley Cherry Garrard's regard for the man, who constituted a significant thorn in the side of his much-beloved Captain Scott, demonstrates Frank Wilde's respect for Shackleton, was shared widely among Antarcticans beyond Shackleton's immediate circle. In the preface to The Worst Journey in the World, Cherry Garrard wrote, For a joint scientific and geographical piece of organisation, give me Scott. For a winter journey, Wilson. For a dash to the pole and nothing else, Amundsen. And if I am in the devil of a hole and want to get out of it, give me Shackleton every time. Meanwhile, in 1922, Antarctic exploration veteran, whaler and whaling magnate, Carl Anton Larsen, having put the herd on rockwool populations around the Antarctic Peninsula, South Shetlands and South Sandwich Islands, was looking to expand whaling efforts into the Ross Sea and asked for British governmental sanction. Having never claimed the Ross Sea, Britain, on Winston Churchill's word, granted Larison a licence as a means to bolster any formal claim they did make. Hey, look everyone, Norway tacitly recognises our claim. Well, only if you're as big a racist as Churchill. Larison took British citizenship in 1910 to make it easy to deal with the insane bureaucracy that is Britain and that's enough said among the race snobs. After quietly discussing the matter while the British whaler with the funny accent awaited word, 
New Zealand agreed that they were the administrators of the Ross Dependency, a dominion instituted in an order in council from the King in 1923. As a Larson asked them how much a whaling licence cost, they would immediately have responded with a query about how much he had on him. By Mr Larson, it just so happens that this is the exact amount a Ross Sea whaling licence costs. What a coincidence! The King's Ordering Council is a different bureaucratic beast to the issuing of letters patent. Letters patent apply to claims over new territories where the Ordering Council is... It's, um... It's... Excuse me. Yes. It's all just people writing down that they own land, but in technical terms, the best kind of terms, there's some distinction that's lost on me that made the Commonwealth territorial claim over the Ross Sea somehow different to that which it used in establishing the Falkland Islands dependency. The orders the King issued very specifically cited the area of Antarctica between 160 degrees east and 150 degrees west, extending to the pole. I don't know if this orange segment approach to thinking about territorial claims near a geographic pole owes more to Sir Clements Markham's quadrant model of the Geographic Congress at the end of the previous century, or an attempt to wipe Amundsen's Ross Sea activities from public memory by dint of omission and thereafter off the maps. Whatever the origins of the orange segment approach, the British example set the pattern for subsequent Antarctic territorial claims with nations assuming that the exploration of, or proximity to, a stretch of coast carried a nation's aegis to a singularity at 90 degrees south. Mathematically satisfying and likely a great relief to cartographers, but philosophically baseless and practically impossible to apply in terms of border control and resource utilisation. Shout out to the people of Lasamba, with whom I shared office space and tea breaks while working in Canberra. Can I get a determination on a geodetics question regarding a potential fisheries violation on the edge of the Australian EEZ? No? Well, maybe a what-what? Still no? Damn one-way nature of recordings and causality. The French responded to the British assertion that the Ross Dependency was always part of the British Dominions with their own writing on a piece of paper to claim a daily land, which would be administered by the colonial government in Madagascar. Whether arising by design or through Gallic indifference, the boundaries of a daily land never got a mention in the French territorial decree. The Brits didn't know how to react to this. If they asked the French what their claim entailed, the French might feel inclined to claim more than the British wanted them to. The segment bounded its northernmost extent by the 240 kilometres of coast de Montdeville sailed along. Trouble arose in that Mawson referred to a daily land as Wilkes Land, what if the French took this as tacit Commonwealth acceptance that the entire segment bounded by what Wilkes claimed to explore was synonymous with a daily land? Wilkes didn't discover what he claimed he discovered, and the French actually got ashore, albeit on an island, and raised a flag and said some magic landowning incantations. Would the fact those incantations were said in French negate them in the eyes of the land gods? Sorry, I'm being sarcastic but we're back into the weird realm that was territorial claims by fiats and flags and proclamations to the penguins, and I get really weirdly bent out of true over this kind of thing, and I think that's likely to get more rather than less frequent as the series inches closer to covering the signing of the Antarctic Treaty. The French decree put a fly in Australia's zinc cream 
as Prime Minister Stanley Bruce was ramping up to administer an Australian sector if he could push Britain to a certain equivalent claim to that it established with New Zealand in the Ross Sea. The French segment lay inside the area to Australia's south. Douglas Mawson thought the three years his Australasian Antarctic expedition spent studying the area trumped de Montdeville's two days inside of the coast. But the British colonial office didn't want to call France out on that. US Secretary of State under Presidents Harding and Coolidge, Charles E. Hughes, cleverly denied that Wilkes's discoveries, a word I apply loosely here, gave the US any right to territorial claims in Antarctica, citing the lack of any follow-up occupation as the key disqualifying element. This was clever because in negating any chance the US could base claims on discovery, it left the entire continent open to claim if the US could establish occupation. The Hughes Doctrine drew on the Monroe Doctrine of a century earlier, which helped rationalise the westward colonial expansion through the 19th century under the banner of Manifest Destiny, though that phrase didn't enter the parlance until decades after the presidency of John Monroe. While negating existing claims, Hughes also set the framework for a lot of effort during the mechanised era that followed the heroic age. It would still be some years before anyone established a long-term residence on the Antarctic mainland, but I see Hughes as a key player in the state of human occupation below the circle as we know it today. In the 1920s, the USA was far more interested in developments in the Arctic. Suspicions of a final, undiscovered continent in the north were propelling people into the Arctic at a rate previously only matched by attempts to find Franklin, and some of their efforts carried repercussions south and therefore warrant some attention in future episodes of Ice Coffee. Saying hi to my brother-in-law Justin. I think of you a lot. I miss you. Take care and appreciate your coffee.